Welcome to Journals of Self-Discovery. Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I have one announcement before we get started, and that is that the Tat Foundation Press has just released Awake at the Wheel, Norio Kushi's Highway Adventures and the Unmasking of the Phantom Self. You might remember that Norio was a guest on this podcast, so I definitely recommend the book. You can read more about it and other books at tatpress.org. If you like Norio's book or any of the books at Tat Press, please leave a review on Amazon. Uh, you might not know it, but you can do that even if you didn't buy the book on Amazon, and it really does help with sales. So now for our show. I have both a guest and a topic this month. My guest is Michael Kasari, and he's here to talk about Richard Rose. Michael was a longtime student of Rose's, and will give you a feel for both the man and his message. And be sure to listen until the very end of this interview, as Michael will also read some poems from Rose's book, Carillon. Enjoy. Well, uh, first thing I want to do is just thank you, Michael, for taking the time out of your day to do this interview with me. I certainly well, appreciate it. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you asking me, because uh, Mr. Rose was a very instrumental person in my uh, life, and probably kept me alive this long had I not met him I doubt that I would be here so to get a chance to uh, reminisce and talk about him is uh, very important and I do appreciate you asking me and uh, and I'll definitely be asking you about the the your first encounter mm -hmm. with Richard Rose but to sort of set the stage for that can can you paint a little bit of a picture of Prior to meeting Richard Rose, uh, mm -hmm. what your interests were or what yeah. your state well, of I mind sure can, was at yeah. that point in time? Um, first of all, I I don't think, maybe like a lot of people back then, this was uh, 1972 or seven, early 73 that I met Rose. Uh, you know, I was a burned out hippie. Uh, my life was going nowhere. I dropped out of college at KSU, Kent State University. For, after three years, I dropped out the first term of my senior year. Uh, I was basically a wreck. I mean, I was a psychological wreck. And uh, I had driven out to the West Coast not too long before I met Rose. Uh, somebody gave me Arthur Janov's Primal Scream. And prior to that time, I'd been to see every counselor, priest, uh, uh, at least a half a dozen different uh, service providers in the uh, Ohio, uh, Canton, Ohio. I was born in Canton. And uh, one night in a bar, somebody gave me Arthur Janov's Primal Scream, and about two days later, I, I quit. I was working. I, I was able to work, but uh, I, I got in my van. I quit my job. I took some money out of the bank, and I drove to uh, he was in Beverly Hills or Hollywood, one of those cities there, and I uh, got a motel room and Monday morning and I went down at six o'clock and sat on the front steps to, I wanted to get in his therapy. I thought this is going to straighten my life out and uh, of course he rejected me and uh, uh, I drove back to Canton and 
was working in a boutique store and a fellow named Phil Frana. I owe Phil Frana an eternal debt because he came in one day and uh, he had told me about Rose and give me his book. But once I saw Jana's book, I said, ah, I don't know what Rose is talking about. But uh, Phil came in again and said, Rose was talking in Kent. Can I put this poster in the window? I said, sure. And as it turns out, I went to that talk. And it was at Kent State University main campus. And would would you say that at that point in time you were on a a spiritual search, no. or was it more? You know? Never. Actually, I, in retrospect, I, I realized um, I was very rarely on a spiritual search. I, I wanted to be uh, free of suffering. I was miserable, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. there's about twelve reasons, none of which I, I really want to go into any great detail. But I was uh, one of six kids second into birth order. Uh, my father was abusive any way you can call it. You can name any kind of abuse. My father was an expert at it all. And uh, my older brother joined in and it was just uh, all I wanted to do was, uh, I don't know what I wanted, but I didn't want to be in the state that I was in. And uh, when I when I went to that lecture for Rose, I, I um, actually was recovering from a, a rather traumatic event, you know, and uh, the room had about 100 people in it, and maybe 25 of whom were standing at the back, and it was, uh, I ended up sitting on the floor leaning against the wall. I couldn't even see him, but to this day, I can still hear the tone of his voice, and the first thing I ever heard him say was, does the man own the house, or does the house own the man, and uh there have been other people that said uh, like a bell went off in their head uh, or something like that when Ro- they heard Rose say something. Well, as soon as I heard his voice, something changed in me. And I'd, I knew, I just intuitively knew I've always been sensitive and uh, not too smart, but pretty sensitive. And uh, um, after the talk, you know, I signed my name on a piece of paper and... Uh, um, ended up going down to see him with Phil Frana, but I just knew that for, in some way uh, that this man would be able to help me. I understand that there were student groups, mm-hmm. of course, that, mm-hmm. that met and discussed Richard Rose's work. Yeah. And worked, yeah. Uh, applied his advice and so forth. Did you, after the talk, did you uh, go to a student group for a while and then go see well, Mr. Rose or did you just right away go to his house and check him out further? What happened was uh, Phil Frana uh, uh, before, you know, there was there was no group in Kent State. At the time, there at that time in 73, uh, I think there was a group in Pittsburgh, but there was uh, no other group. And so Phil called me and he said, I'm going down to see Rose on Saturday. Do you want to come along? And I said, I would. Yeah, you betcha. And so we drove from Canton. It's about 120 miles down to a little town on the Ohio River called Benwood, Benwood, West Virginia. And uh, I had no idea. I hadn't, uh, you know, I didn't have any, I had read one book by Krishnamurti. I will say that. Uh, think on these things. And I, and I thought that was an amazing point of view, the way he talked about uh, being in the world, you know, being present to 
experience and stuff like that. But there was nobody I could talk to about it. So, I mean, that was my only experience with, uh, let's call it esoteric or spiritual work. Um, so Phil and I drove down there a Saturday morning and uh, uh, we went up these steps. It was an old house, a two-story two house on uh, on a little hill across from a school, which was right next to the river. And it was poor. It was a poor area, uh, very poverty-stricken. But uh, Rose met us at the back door, like, you know, big smile, a handshake. Yeah, come on in, you know. Uh, we sat there, and I, I, I don't re in the kitchen was... Uh, you know, oilcloth, uh, tablecloths on two old Formica tables with a, a royal typewriter in the middle of it, and dishes piled, you know, just uh, just an ordinary kitchen. And uh, I think we spent half the day there talking, and I have no idea what he talked about, and I have no recollection of anything, but I know when I went back to uh, Ohio, uh, there was a small group of people who had been at the talk. Um, I don't know if I should mention names. I could, but uh, there were about five of us, and we rented. So we rented a, an old house on the outskirts of Kent, and that was the first Kent ashram. And I moved from, at the time, I was staying at my parents' house because I'd moved out of a farmhouse I'd been living in. It was yeah, full of drugs and, you know, wrong influences. So... I uh, moved into the ashram in Kent. Yeah, it was. Uh, and we had meetings. We had. Uh, as a matter of fact, you probably know uh, one Steve Harnish. I believe Steve Harnish was the first Kent monitor, and uh, uh, we had weekly meetings and posters we made on. It's nothing like it is today, you know. The, and uh, the posters that we. We made by uh, using magic marker on a typing paper and go around the campus and stick them up, you know. And uh, that's how it all began for me, just uh, being involved in helping, uh, being part of a group and helping that group to function. That's how Rose used to say it. Did you ever have the thought of uh, well, what am I doing, getting involved in this? <laughs> this is kind of crazy, or did you? No. Did you just kind of leap in and sense that no. this is the thing that I need to be doing? I had, I had nothing left, you know. See, there wasn't really. Hmm. I mean, this was the uh, last, uh, my last chance. Is really the way I felt about it. I had been so down and so close to uh, extinction. Uh, it was either this or die, and and I had no idea what Rose was really talking about. Uh, but I was very, I became, I, I, I was emotionally attached to him in a way that, uh, you know, I have found out many years later. I was a devotee. I was, I was not a disciple, uh, meaning I wasn't really a philo I didn't have a philosophical mind. I'm a very emotional person. I was, and I still am. And so I just knew, and I, I was attracted to him, his charisma, his compassion, uh, his sense of humor, his very common, uh, you know, he wasn't, uh, he didn't have any pretense about him. And after I talked to three or four psychologists and a psychiatrist and like coming from Janoff's place. These people were arrogant as hell, but there was nothing like that about Rose. 
but he had a presence in person that was, uh, I mean, it just affected me. And he, he, he always discouraged people from uh, being devoted to him. You know, he, he was, uh, he could be crude. Uh, he could, be, and if he decided to, if you got on his wrong side, uh, you know, it would be, it was, the paint would peel off the walls. I can tell you that much, but, uh, you know, I just loved him. I, that's, because my own father was intolerable. See, he was, so I, I mm -hmm. Rose became a father figure for me. That's really what happened, you know. So, mm -hmm. uh but at gradually, as time went on, uh, you know, I bought the book. I did what he told me to do. I did what he said we should do because he was. We were all a bunch of. Uh, I would say most most of us were. I don't want to put people in there, but we were kind of burned out hippies, the first group. And uh, Rose had said that uh, he had a window of opportunity, or there was a window of opportunity for him to talk because uh, people's heads had been opened up with acid and you know yeah that was me see and uh, so uh, it was you know it was very humble beginnings and uh, if he said buy this read this book you know and the first book was eight and a half by eleven typed out on old royal typewriters stapled together and then put uh, with uh, uh, what do you call it uh, duct tape on the edge the Albigen papers the first there were two halves to it, you know, and um, it kind of went like that. And if he uh, was, he would come up about once a month to visit, you know, and uh, give a talk. And the, he, he'd come to the student union and sit in on the meeting. And, of course, things were always electric when he was there. <laughs> yeah, it was funny sometimes. What sort of things did he have you all doing? Like, I know you were mm -hmm. having meetings. Mm -hmm. Was there, uh, did he give guidance on what the meeting should be like or topics uh, or those sorts of things? Act, yeah, in the early days he did. Um, matter of fact, there was something that uh, I think Augie Torak wrote the Monitor Papers, but there were supposed to be, and, and one thing about Rose is he had his way of doing things, and that's the way you did them, yeah, because... Uh, well, we didn't know what we were doing otherwise, so it was basically a blueprint. You know, I'd always worked as a carpenter, so blueprints are heaven because you're out there, and if you don't know what to do, you go look at the print. You know, that's what you do. Um, but what he really did initially with everyone, stop drinking, stop smoking, no drugs, and be celibate. This is it. This is, you know, here you want to do something? Here, do those things. Get your, oh, get your head on straight is what he called it, you know. Get your life, get, you couldn't, uh, you know, we were to be the laboratory. You know, this was not a, here's a whole bunch of stuff. I want you to learn these terms. You know, it wasn't like college. I mean, he was a, the most amazing, uh, I'll call him a teacher. I mean, I had a lot of teachers, you know, I had three years of, of college and, uh, but he was not that kind of teacher. You were. This was a experiment with your life, and and you, the way you were to be in the world. And he'd say, "I'm trying to age a few young people," and so we all, uh, um, you know, there was no booze and no dope in the house. I mean, no, if anybody, if anybody was, that would be the end of you. You know, you really kind of had to follow the rules. 
uh, and it, it served everybody well, um, really, to uh, clean our acts up. And, um, but the meetings, the meetings would be on a topic, uh, you know, like you might, the monitor, there was one guy called the monitor, and it, in this case it was uh, Steve Harnish. He's still a great monitor today, you know. Uh, and the monitor was was um, uh, not to be confronted. Rose had a system. He actually had a system. He called it the Albigen system, and, and uh, that was his blueprint for, uh, let's say, becoming a spiritual seeker, or how to go about it, you know. And um, uh, so the monitor might ask everyone in the room the same question, like, uh, "What do you know for sure?" And and you know. People would give their answers and uh, go, and and then the other people in the room. Uh, at the time, you had to you know, volunteer to be confronted, or else you could not confront. But other people in the room would ask you questions about what you uh, said, with the intent to reflect to you your thinking or maybe errors in your thinking. Uh, that's how it went. So that was the beginning. Uh, um, that was all. We all began at the same place, really. You mentioned celibacy, which mm-hmm. is probably uh, I, projecting upon the audience. I can hear people saying, "Yeah, that makes sense. No, no drugs. Uh, right, yeah, it right. sort of makes yeah. sense. No booze. Yeah. Uh, but this celibacy right. thing. Yeah. Uh, Never a popular topic. What's up topic. with that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> never a popular topic. And certainly less so today than uh, back then. But uh, uh, Rose was, see, today there's so many people out there and they call it energetics or whatever. But what Rose was, he had spent his whole lifetime um, with, uh, he wanted to know God when he was young, you know, four or five years old. Or, he, you know, he was from a Catholic family. Always in a Catholic family, there's one that's going to be a priest, you know, and he was the one. And, um, for what it's worth, for a while, I was the one in my family, you know, but that didn't work out. Um, but in any event, um, he, he was a, he had no teachers. And what he discovered was, and, and you know, what he put in his uh, Albigen system, and like the idea of celibacy, he realized that, it ta- you know, all your energy had to be directed at one thing. You couldn't, like he told me, Kasari, you can't ride two horses, you know, you can't. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the whole idea of celibacy, what is the, the major, see, the major uh, energy source in any animal or any living creature, even a tree, is to stay alive, you know, and, uh, uh, and then after that, well, reproduction. That's it. Those are the two big energy things. And so his idea was, uh, part of the idea of celibacy is to take the energy from cel- uh, that you would normally expend. And, it's nothing, and it was not that sex was a sin or anything like that. Uh, it could be detrimental to your health physically, and it could also be very detrimental to your health uh, psychically or psychologically. But it was not a sin. And he said, celibacy is a tool. And me being a carpenter, I had tools, see. And I, so I understood, this is what I loved about him. His language was so plain. 
I never heard him once in his, and I knew him for 40 years. He never once said the word satsang, and I'm so thankful for that. See, he just talked. He just, he was at Western, and he said his own description. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a fat-headed, arrogant bastard. I'm a West Virginia hillbilly that looks like Burl Ives with the mange. You know, I mean, he, he was, he, he had that way of saying things that just hit the nail on the head and you didn't have to have a college degree to understand it. I don't know how many times I heard him say, anybody can find this answer. If you work in a steel mill, it doesn't matter. See, and, and if you hang around psychologists and uh, those kind of people, you get the feeling that, uh, oh, they're smart and you're dumb, see. Uh, but it wasn't that way with Rose, you know. Uh, so the, the idea of celibacy was to conserve your energy. And, uh, and he would advise people. It, he never gave blanket uh, prescriptions. Like celibacy for one person would be different. Like if a person, uh, you know, had three girlfriends, celibacy for him might be dropping two of them. <laughs> but if a person had... One mm -hmm. girlfriend, and they only saw each other once a week. Well, then maybe how about seeing each other once a month? You know, he would. Uh, there was, he, you know, uh, he personalized things because uh, after he met a person and you talked to him, um, he would know you. He could know you really in a heartbeat. He had this amazing ability. But so you take that energy and then you begin to do the mental or reading. He was big on reading. You know, these are books you can read. Uh, and not just his books, you know. Uspensky uh, was real popular, the, the fourth way back then. And, uh, oh, Conquest of Illusion. I, it took me years to get through Conquest of Illusion, and it's just this little tiny book. But, I, you know, I just couldn't get my head around it. But eventually I did. You know, eventually I understood what he was talking about. So, um so that's, and you know, I don't know if people today have any interest in celibacy or not, but I can tell you what it did for me and for the uh, other people in the group. And, you know, you fall, you, and it just matters if, just get up one more time than you fall, that's all. You just keep putting one, this is Rose, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Do what's in front of you. If you throw enough mud at the ceiling, some of it will stick. You know, I mean, he would, he had these, uh, he was a contractor, so he, he, uh, he spoke a lot about uh, things that he learned contracting, like some of the laws in the, uh, the law of the contractors, one of them, work with other people. That's why the group, you know. So, uh, yes, uh, celibacy can uh, really be a tool. If uh, it can hurt you too, if you're not careful, you know the male can get, uh, uh, you can get uh, have prostate trouble if you don't do, you know. Celibacy is actually not just there's no physical repression. Yeah, you, ha you have to learn to turn your mind away from it. Turn your what he used to call internal head. You can't think about sex and then not because thoughts inspire glands and glands inspire thoughts, and so it's a circle. So there is a science to it, but uh, he was uh, always remained throughout his life big on that. You know, if you really want to make spiritual progress, you'll try it. You know, you'll you'll do the experiment. You'll make yourself the laboratory. Mentioning celibacy brings up the question for me of <laughs> what what for you is 
most challenging about either his teachings or his system or working with him? And what what were your particular challenges? See, uh, I, I you know I didn't have like you know to quote a little bit of Gurdjieff, you know, there's instinctive man and also instinctive 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 people. Okay, I don't want to leave anyone out. And emotional people and then intellectual people and then philosophic people. Those are Gurdjieff's breaks down. And I was emotional. And but Rose's path, if you want to call it that, was uh, geared more toward the intellectual slash philosophical person. And my biggest obstacle was um, he said it to me once, you know, I can still hear him say that. He said, uh, you know, when you begin to understand what we're doing, you know, I'd only been around for like two years and he said that. See, so it's, uh, that was confrontation for me. Um, uh, but as far as, you know, personally with him, um, he would give me stuff to do. Uh, like he said, hey, Kasari, why don't you go out and sell a few books? Because he, he had, uh, you know, over the years he wrote a few more books and then he republished books like Magic, White and Black, uh, Santinelli, The Law of Hypnosis, uh, Law of Suggestion, I believe that was the name of it, and uh, a number of other books that he carried. He bought Conquest of Illusion in bulk from the publisher, and so, you know, and I was a very, I was a very uh, introverted person, and I, I still am, but I was I couldn't even go to the big meetings at the farm. You know, we had meetings uh, four times a year, as a matter of fact. And I mean, for the first year, I sat outside. I couldn't go in the room with all the people. I was just that uh, shy. But then he'd say, eh, why don't you go out and sell books? And it's like, you've got to be kidding me, Mr. Rose. You know? mm. and, it, and, then, mm. and then to make it worse, see, the book industry used to be, it used to be a standard 40% discount. Everything was standard, you know. <laughs> no, no. Rose's Rose's discount was thirty eight percent, and it was he, <laughs> and you know he wrote it up on a card. I still have some of these cards uh, somewhere. Uh, if I ever get my possessions back, uh, um, you know he had a particular handwriting. He'd he'd always write on like pieces of cardboard that came out of a shirt or something. You know, there's he never wasted anything, and uh, and so I did. You know, just. Doing some of the, and he, and if you took a commitment on, he you couldn't do anything else until you, you know, either finish the job, or uh, if you finished the job and you wanted to go to a, you know, do a little more, you had to find somebody to take your old job, like putting up posters, for instance. If you graduated from that, you couldn't just say, "I'm done," you know, "I'll go." Okay, I'll go set up a talk. No, no, who are you going to get to do the postering you used to do? So mm. it was. He was always. The hardest part for me was the group work, which meant I had to interact with people. Uh, that was very difficult for me. Yeah, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say that was my biggest obstacle. And then basically just um, trying to graduate just from being an emotional person. Uh, I had a very you know, I was really attached to him, and we got, and I had a rapport with him as a result of that. And he was always kind of, he'd bust my chops because he didn't want people attached to him. And, of course, I was kind of a foolish young person, too, you know. And uh, 
I could be the butt of a lot of jokes because I did a lot of stupid stuff, but uh, yeah, I survived. I think. <laughs> and I, I just, yeah, I just wanted to uh, uh, sidestep, if you will, for a moment. You sure. mentioned uh, if Please. I ever get my possessions back, uh, <laughs> oh, I don't yeah. want people to have the impression that you're homeless on the oh, sidewalk no. at the moment. No, 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 no. You know, we moved from. Uh, uh, Canton, Ohio, uh, to San Diego, my big move, you know, and uh, because mm-hmm. Gail's Gail's a single single parent, uh, um, they have two grand. She has two grandchildren, and her son is a single parent, and uh, they're twelve and thirteen. And so yeah, we came out here. But as it turns out, the company that we hired to move our goods was uh, owned by the Russian mafia in Florida, and they had thirteen shell companies. In uh, nine states, uh, and recently um, they have been, uh, finally, the uh, uh, federal, uh, let's see, what is it, U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, they, they arrested him, and there was a big to-do in the Southern District of Ohio, Cincinnati area, that, uh, and they took, uh, they, the FBI seized possession of uh, seven warehouses, and some of these warehouses have hundreds of people there's over 1200 victims and we're one of them so we don't have our stuff all of our stuff is in a warehouse in cincinnati and until the uh, department of justice sees fit we can't get it and and, uh, just as recently as two days ago we were interviewed again by a television station we've been on good morning america but uh, no we're not destitute uh, we just don't yeah. have anything we own. I am sitting on a chair, but we're sleeping on the floor. I'm learning how to sleep on a futon mat, you know. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's been yeah. good. You know, actually, what I was depressed for about two months. I mean, it's so devastating because all my books, you know, and everything. Yeah. Everything. All my the letters. I got a few letters from Rose. Everything. Clothes. All my tools. 50 years so it's gone and and you know people uh, spiritual work talk about detachment and then they go out and they get in a bmw and they drive down the road i'll tell you what you go home tomorrow and everything you own is gone except well we do have cars computers cell phones and one suitcase that's what we got Mm -hmm. i've been wearing this good thing in california you can get by with flip-flops because i almost (laughs) brought nothing because all you need is shorts a t-shirt and flip-flops right yeah, we'll try living right. in them for two months. <laughs> so I've learned detachment, and detachment is, uh, you know, it's it's um, you know it's part of the part of the whole uh, uh, spiritual path because you know we're so attached to everything and we think it's uh, just ego we got to get rid of. No, try getting rid of what half of the stuff you think you need, and you'll get a new point of view on yourself. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> no, thanks for sharing that story. Okay. It's, that's, yeah, you're welcome. It's pretty yeah, remarkable. It's, I know, I know. And, and, you know, we've met, there's so many people that are, they're just, it's such a devastating thing. And, and if you want to uh, project that out um, to, okay, well, when your, when your egos start to fall, I mean, it's, it's all devastating as hell. And Rose, Rose could, I remember it. You know, I moved to Denver once, uh, I don't know when it was, back in the 80, 1981. And uh, 
oh, I set up a talk for him or something. But I'd come back to visit him, and I had a girlfriend. I always had a girlfriend, you know. We were in the kitchen, and I mean to tell you, he just chewed me out for paying, spending more energy with my girlfriend than I did on running the group or whatever was going on. And I mean, losing an ego is, is really a devastating thing because uh, uh, you think it's you, you know. So uh, it's all good. It's all God. <laughs> yeah, so you, uh, even, even though you uh, describe yourself as a devotee of Richard Rose, it's not like you lived on his farm or something for 20 years. No. Uh, you no. actually, uh, you know, like as you say, you came and went and, Mm-hmm. and uh had other things going on at the same time oh yeah yeah i mean i i uh i mean he inspired the, the heck out of me and and uh um, i eventually went back to college when i was uh, 39 and uh i got a i got undergraduate degrees in philosophy and psychology both of them with honors and then i went to you know i went got a master's degree in psychology and because I wanted to be a psychologist. Because, you know, I, I really, uh, it's fair to say that um, being around Rose and interacting with Rose and the group, you know, because you've got to deal with other people. And uh, um, I lived on the farm off and on. for I built a cabin down there, and I lived there off and on for a you know, week at a time, and I did a month's isolation one time. But, uh, um uh, I even got an appeal. I wanted to be a psychologist because I said, damn, this guy's a real psychologist. And he had a, and he always maintained that uh, the perfect psychology will lead to absolute truth. And he didn't go into the tremendous detail about it, but the, you know, if somebody wanted to get a book, the psychology, the observer um, uh, is a, a small, a thin book. He called it a little book, but uh it was his psychological system, and uh, if you can pick up what's in there, uh, you know you can retraverse the projected ray of of your individuality, and you go. You have to go through your psychology. You really can't ignore it, you know, because if you sit in meditation ten hours a day and you know you're dialing bliss, but you go down to work and your boss gives you a hard time and you pop a gasket, well, what? You know, uh, that's not necessarily that you've uh, changed your being. And uh, his system was about change through action. I guess I could say it like that. You change through action and determination, you know. You had to be determined to do things. And so we all had jobs. But if you lived at the farm, you didn't have to work. You know, you didn't. He didn't demand it. He said the farm is an ashram. You can come down and meditate out in the woods, pitch a tent, build a cabin, whatever you want to do. But most of the guys down there, you know, we'd cut firewood and build roads and and uh, you know cut brush. We had goats. And, I mean, it was West Virginia country living um, with with a, with a benefit, and the benefit was you know we'd have meetings and. Uh, group meditation and and Rose Rose was uh he was such a live wire you know he he was he was always there and 
He always had something for you to do, I can tell you that. You were never bored. If you wanted something to do, he'd give you something. Now, I know the, I mean, obviously you spent a lot of time with him. Did you Did you ever get a sense of there's Rose, the spiritual teacher, but then there's Rose, the the ordinary guy? I mean, was well, there ever that sense of what he was like, you know, yeah, hanging out in the living room or something? I'll tell I spent so I I mean I I, did, I traveled with him a couple times back to you know back and forth across the country and well you know when we were there in in uh, Moundsville the farm is up outside of Benwood you know up on top of hill the mountain there in Moundsville West Virginia address but say Kasari come on in for dinner tonight you know uh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I'd go in and there'd be two 98-cent TV dinners there. But it was having dinner with Rose. And we would just, let's go to Arthur Treacher's and get us fish sandwich, you know. And so we, I did a lot of stuff like that with him. Come on, let's go to get some groceries, you know, and go to the grocery store with him. And uh, uh, I had one particular experience on the way to, because he would drive all across town to save 10 cents a pound on bananas, you know. He'd go to four different grocery stores and... Uh, uh, he was in a, cause he, you know, he grew up in the depression and, and, uh, mm-hmm. his parents put him in a, a, uh, orphanage, a Catholic orphanage because they didn't have enough money to feed him. I mean, so, uh, he knew the value of a nickel, I'll tell you. And no matter where you were with him, uh, he, there was no, there was no distinction between Rose, the man and Rose, the teacher. Rose, the man was a teacher. I mean, he had made that mm-hmm. commitment uh, early on because he, when he was looking, he traveled all across the country. You know, he came out here to Yogananda's place, and and he, and if he heard about a book somewhere, you know, to get uh, to get Elias Levi, I, I forget where how far he had to go by bus because he heard there might be a copy at some little bookstore, and he said the guy actually went down. He said he opened a trap door in the floor and went down in the basement and brought it up. You know, so. Uh, but the uh, the whole idea was to uh, uh, he couldn't find anybody who didn't want money or sex or power or fame, and he made a, He said he 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 never really started to move until he made a vocal commitment. Meaning he, my understanding of a vocal commitment is you say it out loud to your to your greater self or God or whatever you want to put it that if I ever find anything, I'll make it available and for free. I think he, I, I, I don't know if I'm adding that or he added that, but I never, I never even bought him a hamburger. He wouldn't let me buy him a hamburger. I hmm. ate at his house 100 times if, if I ate there once, and he never let me buy him a hamburger. I mean, I, that's just, and that's a little bit different than what happens today. You know, these guys have... Uh, there's a guy right now, my wife's involved getting in a, a uh, uh, she signed up for a seminar. He's going to bring in about three and a half million in a week. The number mm-hmm. of people that have signed up for the online and everything else, you know, and I mean, it just astounds me, you know, but, but Rose had certain attitudes. You can't mix money and spirituality, you know. Uh, you know, if you can't tell, you have to tell the truth in relative things. Otherwise, you you know, you have to make of yourself a truth machine in a way. 
if you can't tell the truth in little things, how are you going to recognize truth in big things? You know, stuff like that. And, and they were, I think, I think people today, uh, I think there's two kinds of people today. Those that would ridicule him for being uh, unsophisticated, but that was by design. He had the greatest vocabulary. I always had to have a dictionary whenever I read anything. He used words in such subtle ways, you know, subtle shades of meaning. Um, and then there's people who uh, really appreciate his directness or could, you know, if they're, but he never really was not, he did not care if five people came to a meeting or 50. He said, if you're here because you're supposed to be here and I deal with people, I talk to people that walk through the door, you know, uh, and, and I can give you one little anecdote that really struck me strange. Um, as far as was there Rose the man and Rose the teacher, uh, I heard him say, I don't know if it was to me, it was to somebody, I'm willing to sacrifice your good opinion of me to tell you the truth. Hmm. See, and, and uh, that, that, uh, that's all, that's profound, you know, because most people today don't want to offend anybody, you know, and, and, uh, but the other thing was, uh, if I'm, at a uh, an intensive that was a 30-day intensive out at the farm in the dead of winter in uh, February, coldest winter in history out there for a while, uh, went 17 below, but there were about 25 people. And, oh, uh, you know, it was rigorous. Uh, you, you know, you paired up, you had a partner, you didn't go anywhere without your partner in case you, you know, froze to death or something or whatever. And, uh, uh, um, you know, there was no meat and, no coffee, some no cigarettes, and some guys had to leave because they couldn't stop. You know, they got to have that coffee and cigarette. But uh, um, and then you'd get duties. You know, like in some you, you know, for a couple days. Okay, it's my turn to wash the dishes, and you had to wash the dishes according to a certain formula out at the farm because he was concerned about oh people getting sick. You know, if you don't wash the dishes, and then you had to clean up the floors with the rag, you know, and then and he was waiting on me because I'm, and he was standing there and I asked him a question. I said, you know, during that meeting today, do you remember when Larry was talking about uh, that line in the psychology observer and he was standing right there next to Larry and I saw Rose, I saw his eyes light up when Larry said whatever it was he'd said and and, and then he looked at me after Larry said it. So, you know, there was a connection made right there. And I said, did you catch that with Larry? So what did you think of that? And he, he looked up and he said, mm, no, I missed that. And I looked up at him and I said, Mr. Rose, you never miss anything. And he said, it's part of the old man act. See? And, you know, that told me something about him. That, that uh, <laughs> see... Being an old man, I mean, he literally was an old man, but what spoke to me there was, you know, uh, rose the consciousness absolute, if you want to say it that way. It's part of the old man act. You know, you have to play your part. Whatever role you find yourself thrust into in life, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, a street sweeper or a CEO of a big company, you have to play your role, but you have to know that it's a role. So in that sense, see, I'm down wiping the floor 
and he's leaning against the door jam and everybody's waiting on me to have start the evening meeting at the intensive and yet this little comment it's it's stuck with me for 35 years see he was mm-hmm. always there was no distinction between rose the man and rose the teacher to say answer your question directly none at all yeah i appreciate that but it, and it kind of leads me into another area we we've talked about uh a little bit about rose's advice to people in terms of practical mm-hmm. things that you can do and mm-hmm. and and definitely he had an emphasis on on doing things and uh cleaning yeah. up one's life and staying focused mm-hmm. and uh conserving one's energy and directing it uh profitably as he would say there's another side i think or another aspect of rose and that's an almost mystical side to him yeah uh you know obviously he wrote a book called the direct mind experience and i was hoping to touch a little bit upon that uh in that um it it seems to me that uh, a lot or uh quite a bit of Rose's accomplishments or the ways that he helped people involved what he called stepping inside the head of another person. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was hoping that perhaps you could, I mean, what does that mean? You know, that's something uh-huh. I've been around people who've been around Rose for many years and step mm-hmm. inside the head is just a phrase that, that uh, comes up. It's not a phrase. It's a, it's a real experience, and, and uh, I can honestly say I was in rapport with him for years, and that, I'll give you some examples in my own life. I was out there at the farm, I forget when it was, you know, but I had a girlfriend. She lived in Kent, right, or Akron, and uh, I'd been down at the farm a couple weeks, and I remember uh, Al Fitzpatrick said uh, we were out down working trying to you know we were always constructing buildings for meetings and this was the big pavilion down behind the house and it was it was uh, 50 feet wide and 100 feet long all built with lumber and logs on the farm you know and and Fitzpatrick said all of a sudden Kasari stopped and his head went up in the air and then the next thing you know he got in his car and he drove away and uh, so I went up to see my girlfriend and you know we got a picnic basket and we went out into this big big open country area on top of a big high hill and the grass I can still remember it uh, you know the grass was high and the wind was blowing it and there was a big old tree up at the top of the hill and you could see for miles and, you know we had a picnic up there put a blanket down you know and everything and uh, um, so I don't know a week later I go back and I didn't tell Rose I was leaving and I didn't communicate with anybody except my girlfriend, you know. Mm-hmm. So I go back down to the farm. Hey, Kasari, how you doing? And I shook his hand. And, oh, you've been up on the hill under an apple tree with the redheaded girl, have you? And I, I was stunned. Hmm. I mean, he described what I did, and I was 200 miles away. And I mean, I I got chill. I can stick at the chills telling you the story because I said, Mister Rose, how can you possibly know that? 
He said, mm, sometimes I just know things, that's all. And, and I had so many things like that happen with him. Uh, and he, he, there was a, see, he called it betweenness. And there's a formula for betweenness. And part of the formula is you can't work betweenness like you work a sales plan, you know, <laughs> and you can't brag about. It. And he always deferred when things would happen. And, and it, ha it happened around other people too, like just, just little strange things, uh, um, uh, you know, he of course, and he he didn't take any credit for even like he'd look at a truck and he'd say, "You're going to lose that tire soon," you know. And one of the guys in the group, Mike Baldridge, had a roofing business and he had a big dump truck. And sure enough, he's driving down the road that day and the tire falls off, or you know. And of course, he was mad at Mr. Rose because he thought Mr. Rose made it happen, you know. <laughs> See, you know, everybody thinks that you think that you are you identify as an individual little mind. Well, I think the mystical aspect of Rose, and Rose was interested in this stuff. He truly was, um, you know, and, and I got interested in it after I met him, really. Um, he was truly a magus, you know, but he didn't talk about it very much. And that was part of the formula. But, uh, you know, he could, he could stop you. If he pointed at you, he could stop you in your tracks, you know. I, I, I got into. I had a Kundalini experience, you know, and I had a lot of energy there for a while, and and uh, uh, I thought. So I went down. He, I talked, called him on the phone, you know, and CC answered the phone, and uh, this would have been about 1980, and uh, I'd be, I'd lived the life, you know. I'd been celibate for almost two years and I didn't, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, you know, I did the meditated every day and read the books. And I thought I was powerful, you know, and I, and, uh, and I, uh, I'd hypnotized a few people and just cause I got interested in that. And I read the book that he recommended. He said, this is the book I learned to hypnotize from you guys. He said, every psychologist, every guy in the group should learn how to hypnotize. So you understand the human mind and how it projects, you know? So I did the things he recommended. And so I'm all, you know, I, I've got a, I've got a, a quantum of energy, you know? And, uh, he says, yeah, come on down. And, so we go down to the same old kitchen, the same old tablecloth, a yellow and white checkered oil tablecloth in the kitchen. And he's sitting across the table from me and he's all, you know, we're telling jokes and he just, it was, and I got this idea that I'm going to whirl around and I'm going to point at Rose between the, you know, you point at the third eye, you know, and you can kind of stop a person's head. And uh, <laughs> so I got this brilliant idea that I'm going to do that to Rose, right? And I whirled around and I pointed at him in my hand, my finger felt like it was on a watermelon seat and I couldn't point at his forehead. It went off to the side. I swear to God, shoot me if I'm lying. And he laughed like hell. He says, try the other hand. And so, so I tried the other hand and I could not point at his forehead. It was impossible. That's, that's what happened. Hmm. I'm telling you the truth. That's exactly what happened. And how and hell how it happened, I have no idea how it happened. But that was Rose the Magus at that point. 
And, you know, that may seem like a really, uh, I don't know, stupid story, but, uh, you know, Shakti. I met some other gurus that, I met a guru from a place called Jewel Heart. He was a Tibetan Lama. He's up in Ann Arbor. They have a very large organization. I did some remodeling in the house he was living in. That's how I met him. And then I went to a weekend intensive, and he put his hands around mine, and I, you know, 220 volts went through there. But it, you know, that's how he got his students. But I already had a teacher, you know. But to, you know, to get back to the point, Rose. If you think you're an individual mind, or if you know uh, mind is everywhere, and we're all one mind, well, uh, you know, maybe you can, like Star Trek, open channel D, see? And you do it by a formula, to know, to will, to dare, and to be silent. And, and Rose lived these formulas. You know what you want, you will it to happen, you know, you dare, and then you don't talk about it. And... Uh, Ultimately, you can, you know, you can, a person, see, I'm a believer in transmission. I don't think, he wrote a book, uh, The Psychology of the Observer is a great book, but he also wrote a book called Energy Transmission Between Us, uh, Energy Transmutation Between Us and Transmission. And he talks about what they used to call in Zen, you know, uh, tra separate transmission outside the scriptures, you know, no dependence on word and words and letters, uh, Direct pointing at the soul of man, um, and I forget the other one, but, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing happens on a construction site. You, you spend, spend a month working with a journeyman. I watched a guy on YouTube today cut dovetails. I used to cut hand-cut dovetails. It's a labor. I watched this guy do it. It's as easy as putting a fork to a piece of steak. You know, you mm -hmm. learn by being, you, you can get a direct transmission from anybody. If you can establish rapport, you know, and that, what's rapport? Well, it's getting into the head of the other person. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you, you no longer exist. And, and I think many, and Rose, he said stuff to me. He said, these guys don't come and talk to me. You know, he would say things to me. I, I, I think my relationship was different uh, because uh, due to my, uh, fractured mentality, call it that or whatever, but I had a, you know, I did have a sensitivity. I still have some of it. And, uh, but, uh, you know, you can't get into somebody else's head if you t want to take your little self with you. No, it's just kind of a, and he said it one time. I'm so glad you're getting me to remember some of these things. He said, you just kind of let yourself ooze out. Hmm. Say so you're in a room, you're, you're, or you're sitting in, and he also recommended sitting in rapport with yourself, which I never quite got that, you know, but I know some people did, and it, it proved beneficial. But, you know, as far as another person, <clears throat> if you want to have rapport with another person, letting yourself ooze out, well, what oozes out? It's sure not your personality. You have to be able to, like, uh, what was that guy's name? Edmund Husserl. I liked him. He was a German philosopher before Heidegger. He said, you have to bracket this out. You have to bracket, you have to leave yourself on a shelf. And so the idea of being able to get into someone's head or, you know, and he would express it. Yeah, you got to walk a mile in somebody's moccasins, you know, but get it. it this, it's the same thing. You just are secure enough 
And I asked him one time, uh, you know, during the same uh, sojourn, I stayed about a week when I went down and tried to, that time when I tried to point at his forehead. And we were in the grocery store and I had this, what do you call it, insight or revelation. I said, Mr. Rose, I realize I could have any personality I want. And he said, yeah, that's true, but you better pick one and stick with it, you know. Hmm. So, uh, but the thing is, personality and who we think we are, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an act. It's a role. But what, if there's only one mind, getting into someone else's head means, uh, you know, there's no interference between the part of mind that comes through your physicality and the part of mind that comes through their physicality. And some, of the, some gurus say it, you know, everyone you look at is you. Well, yeah, but that's a capital Y-U, let's say, you know, and, and, uh, I, and I, I know there's been many people in the early group and there's some little videos made, you know, uh, one of the roses, one of the roses first students said this and he, that people say it proudly. He said, oh, I was sitting next to Rose. I was sitting next to Rose and I knew if I looked at him, I'd see myself. I couldn't get myself to look at him. And I'm thinking, why the hell not? For God's sakes, isn't this what you want? And many, many people, but it's a, it's a frightening thing depending on the, the depth of your attachment to who you think you are, which in the final analysis, you aren't, you know. So, uh, and that was, see, that was the real, that was Rose's real legacy, I think, except that, uh, you know, the, the TAT group and the people in the group are his part of biggest part, you know, a very visible and critical part of his legacy. But his other legacy was this idea of direct mind, really, and, and transmission, because I think it's happening now in the group, in the TAT group with between people, you know, that uh, if you hang around somebody that's uh, oh, made the trip, and if you're, you know, you connect, they call it heart connection. Now, they have different names for it, but... Uh, uh, I'd rather hang around with somebody that made the trip than than the local butcher, unless the local butcher's made the trip. You know, otherwise he's going to be uh, talking about the the Phillies. You know. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you got a master's in psychology, and yep. were you also a? Uh, I mean, were you a licensed therapist? Oh well? yeah. yeah, yeah. I was. I was a. Uh, I was a licensed uh, social worker, LSW in Ohio. You got to take a battery of tests, and uh, I worked for ten years as a, a therapist in uh, group homes for adjudicated youth. I didn't work there ten years; a number of years, of age thirteen to eighteen. I also worked as a behavior. I worked as a behavior specialist, which is uh, designing behavior plans for incorrigible youth. Like I would go to meetings at the schools, you know, and uh, you have to design a plan. How are we going to get this kid to sit still and, and quit throwing books at people or whatever it is? Um, and I worked at a couple, I worked in Columbus, Ohio at a very large uh, center there. And I will tell you something. I learned psychology from Rose. I mean, I was in a PhD program, University of Nevada. And uh, my one of my professors was the guy that started this uh, act therapy, ACT. I know him personally. I've been to parties in both of his houses, you know, in Lake Tahoe and all that. They don't hold a candle 
to Rose as a psychologist, and I don't mind saying that publicly, because his the way see the way to change behavior is through circ and he and he said it in a poem somewhere once. I wish I knew which remember what it was, but the teacher is by circumstances that befall us. So he would create circumstances. Like Gurdjieff, you know, Gurdjieff could write music and he would say, this person is going to weep when they hear it. And they'd walk in and they'd start bawling and they didn't even know why. Gurdjieff, and Rose thought Gurdjieff was the most brilliant psychologist um, in the Western world. But in my method, working with people, like with these young kids, I mean, these kids were had a choice when they came to the group home, go to jail or, you know, or come to this group home and and, uh, you know, they were, they were some tough kids. And I had an office, <laughs> and I had a two-foot square mirror down behind, beside my, between the desk and the wall, you know, and these kids would come in, and I'd get them going, and, and they'd get mad as hell, you know, and I'd whip that mirror up, and I'd say, look at yourself, and it would stop their heads. And, but then, like the principal of the school said, Mr. Kasari, where did you get your training? Because I didn't follow the appropriate way, uh, and I hate that word appropriate, I'll tell you what, they should strike that from the English language. I didn't follow the appropriate accepted methods for dealing with uh, ADHD. And it's all medication, too, the, the whole thing with Big Pharma and medication. But those methods that I learned from Rose, and that Rose used with people, worked. He could just, uh, and that's because he knew people from the inside out, you know, and he, he used to hypnotize people. He said, we should all learn to hypnotize. That way you really understand the human mind, not by reading books, but by going there. And you first mind you go through is your own, you know. So uh, uh, it really served me well as you know in that although I never did become a PhD because I couldn't stand I walked out I couldn't stand the uh, uh, the social politics and uh, you know how it is on colleges these days so I left so uh, so in your experience uh, stepping inside the head of another person it's not something that you can you could have said oh this next student that's coming in I'm going to step inside of the head of that person it sounds like it's more of a, a stance or a, 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 an allowing or opening yourself yes. to the possibility yes. that that might happen right right well not not even that no uh, I'll tell you I was riding out west with Rose in the van one time we were going to Arizona and he was talking about sensitivity and I got my little notebook you know and I'm writing stuff down and I said oh Mr. Rose I'm trying to be more sensitive I'm he said Kasari you have to allow yourself to be more sensitive and that sentence changed my whole life see and so if you're meeting like if I was meeting a kid uh, and, you know, Eckhart Tolle has a power of now. I, I don't think I ever read the book. But so a kid comes in and, and your job, my commitment with the kids was I'm going to help these kids. And I've had a, I got a couple letters out of all the kids I work with. I did get a couple letters from kids thanking me for changing their lives. You know, it's nice to hear that. But 
the thing was, my commitment was, you know, I, I, I wasn't uh, trying to build a career. Everybody's trying to build a career, you know. I wasn't trying to build a career. I got into psychology because I wanted to help someone psychologically because Rose had helped me. And this was my way uh, of, of uh, passing it on, see. And so if, you're, if, you're, if you want to, you only want to get rapport with people for one of two reasons, either to love them or to get something from them or to dominate them, Rose would say. You would love them or dominate them. So, and you know, that's an impersonal love, let's say. Not, not a, you know, a touchy-feely love or anything like that, a romantic love. So if you want to get into another person's head, just leave yourself at the door. Take your shoes off and yourself and put them at the door and go in with an attitude of, you want to help, see? And he said, no matter how uh, bad off you think you are, or no matter how uninformed you think you are, there's always somebody who can benefit from something that you can. You can. He said you can refer them a book if you if, if nothing else. You know what I mean? And so, no matter who you meet, uh, you there's something that you can do for them if it's your attitude, not about stepping into their head, but. It's an a, a attitude of helping someone, you know, that, and, and I think it's that attitude that carries the day. And, and, and in addition to leaving yourself completely out of it, you don't put yourself, like Rose talked about healing too. And, and he could, and I tried this and, you know, I took away a few headaches and uh, pain from a sprained ankle and a few little things, you know. And you just leave yourself totally out of it. And I think that's the really hard thing for people to do because we're so damn attached to these little uh, Paul Hederman action figures. That's his word. We're so attached to the action figure. But the action figure is just that. It's a cartoon character. And, and a true rapport is essence in connection with essence, you know. And... Uh, um, but then there's always the issue of, uh, or the problem of understanding what just happened to you. You know, you might walk out of a room and you know something happened, but what the hell just happened to me? But you find yourself traveling a little bit lighter and you know something happened and then maybe you can go back and, uh, like Rose used to say, you got to dope that out. And he didn't, he didn't mean smoky dope. He meant, you, you know, that was an old expression. You got to figure it out. And that's why you want to read books on psychology for the inspiration. That's what, that's what it was all about, you know. So uh, it's a very doable thing for anyone. And you can do it with the animals. I've worked with horses a number of times, you know, as a groom on a Tennessee walking horse farm with 40 horses. And I did that job twice, two different places. And uh, to this day, I, I, it's, I love animals and animals love me. Except birds, I've always find it hard to get rapport with birds. I don't know why, you know. But mm -hmm. but anything else, anything with four legs, no problem. And it, it's, they talk to me. But you can't have number one. You can't think, oh Jesus, uh, this is crazy, you know. But I've I've gone. I used to live on a farm that we had donkeys, and one of them was called Big Boy. He was about eighteen hands high, just a monster donkey. 
tell you, when I got depressed or something or downed out about something in my life, I'd go out there, I'd take an apple with me, and I'd put my arm around his big dusty neck, and he's got eyes as big as golf balls, you know, and and we're in commune. Hmm. It's like Rose on the horse that, uh, you know, he took out in the storm to try to find the cattle. He promised the horse he'd bring the horse back, you know, and, and uh, uh, essence is essence, no matter what... Uh, piece of protoplasm or material, so-called material, uh, you know, it's, it comes through, you know, trees have essence, you know, the secret life of plants, I guess, uh, something like that. But uh, essence recognizes essence, and that's what rapport really is. Along that line, you, uh, you wrote a piece called uh, Richard Rose, The Man Who Was a Mirror, which I'll link to. Uh, in the show notes, and there's a there's a line in there, um, which I had I had never heard Rose say anything like this before. Uh, he said, uh, "If you want direct mind, you have to avoid technology." Can yeah? Can you say some more? Elaborate on that a little. I can. Uh, well, I'll give you an example. This is a mundane example. We can take it further. Once I got on my feet after being at the farm a while, you know, and everything, I ended up uh, uh, having a crew, having a, uh, I was up in Canton. I, I started out as a, as a carpenter's helper, <clears throat> but I got myself together, and I eventually had my own framing crew, and I'm framing new houses. So I had gas-powered compressors. I had nail guns. I had everything to go in. When they drop a load, and there's the foundation, and boom, we put the house up. So down at the farm, we're building the pavilion, and if you ever saw it, it's behind the farmhouse. It's this 100-foot-long building with solid board roof, and all the lumber was cut on the farm, and we took it to the sawmill and cut it. And so there's a whole bunch of guys down there, and Rose had guys sorting boards by width, and so I'm walking down, and I think I'm a hot shot, you know, because I got crews. I got a crew framing new houses. I said, Mr. Rose, I got my compressor, and the guys are struggling driving nails. See, the guys are struggling driving nails. You had to hold them with vice grips <clears throat> because they were most of them were rusty nails that had been straightened out on rainy days that Rose had picked up in houses that burned down and brought back in five-gallon buckets. And when it was raining on the farm, what we did was straighten nails. See? So I, t I said, Mr. Rose, I can bring my nail guns and my compressor, and we can shoot, we can nail these boards. And he kept ignoring me. See? He didn't even hear it because the value was in guys learning how to drive nails, learning how to do, D-O, so the technology of, of big spiker nail guns that you could shoot, boom, 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 like that, uh-uh. No, one guy who can't wipe his own nose, maybe he, like I was when I first started because I was so burned out, uh, the, guy, the technology, anybody can push a nail gun into a board and shoot a nail. But to learn how to hold it, you know, to make your, to, be attentive to the moment. Take that nail, put the vice grips on it, now hit it with a hammer and get it to go in. See, that would build something in that man. The technology would ruin it. 
So fast forward, if you want direct mind, <laughs> you can, you know, uh, uh, Joseph Sidoni did psychic experiments with the guys that went to the South Pole, and he had an incredible correspondence all over the world, and they didn't have cell phones. So they would decide to send messages at a certain time, but the messages are psychic messages or thought messages, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so the more we depend upon the more we depend upon technology, the farther away we get from our essential self. Uh, you know, they got 3D glasses now, or, you know, these things you put on and you're in a world, you know. But it's not this one. But, I mean, it's enough of a dream world without insulating ourselves further by, by this exotic technology. And, and, I, and, and even, even, you know, there's a lot of very successful authors who still write on yellow pads. Eckhart Tolle wrote Power of Now on yellow pads. You know, he didn't use a word processor. So um, that's my take on that statement, that mm -hmm. you, you go within yourself and find a way to do it, see, as opposed to the you know the the beauty of tech not the technology doesn't have its place but if you're interested in developing in yourself the ability to uh, step into somebody else's head uh, you do it it's like Rose how did he know I'd been under that apple tree for God's sake see it was like he was always with me and you know by implication I was always with him but I was always playing catch-up, you know, and and uh, he did say one time, he said, the door is open, but you guys got to climb up to it. I'm not going to bother you, but the door is open. The door was always open in his head, and now what door? Well, the door to a memory of his experience, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of take issue with people that say, uh, today it's that uh, you know, we always have been what we're looking for, you know, and the eye that's looking out is the same eye that's looking in, or however it's said. And and yet, at the same time, for some people in some places at some times, uh, you can... <laughs> Rose said to me once about another person, uh, 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 he said, I was the door, I was the tunnel through which CC saw. He was always liking to play on words, but if you get that. So another person can be a portal hmm. out of this out of this limited dimension, let's say, or out of their limited identification with an independently existing individual consciousness, however you want to say it. Another person who's got a and 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 the thing is, that person's life, uh, I, you know, I mean, this is my own take on this. You know, you build a vector by what you do, not by what you say. And Rose was big on the idea of building a vector, a vector away from untruth. And so at some point, you know, there's a leap of faith because you go, you find out your intellect, it's been run up a rat hole. Now what? See? And then it becomes intuition or, or it become, yeah, it becomes intuitive after that. And so another person who's there, and you probably experienced this yourself, somebody gets in rapport with you, their eyes are going to get a little bit wider. 
See? And it's the same way my eyes got real wide today watching that video of that old man, 81 years old. He cut those dovetails so perfectly, so fast, and he was whistling Dixie while he was doing it. And I thought, oh, my God, I never could have believed it. See? Mm -hmm. And so my eyes got wider, but that's a relative sense, you know, and, and you just, as above, so below. And, and uh, uh, that's how it can happen. So, I, And I think that's one of the things that's, possibly overlooked by um, the people who are carrying on the Rose's work today is the uh, idea of tr a transmission, a direct, tr direct transmission of mind outside the scriptures, you know, and the whole idea of direct mind, because yeah, he wrote a book about it. Uh, and and uh, so it was important to him, and <laughs> it's important to me because, uh, you know, I'm a devotee. Uh, a couple more questions for you, um, sure. just by way of, of wrap-up. If if someone listened to this podcast and they said, you know, I'd like to find out some more about uh, Richard Rose, is there, a, mm -hmm. is there a book that you would direct them towards or, or some other sort of research? I'll tell you what. Um, well, there's the TAP Foundation website, T-A-T... Uh, if you type in T-A-T Richard Rose, you'll get there. Um, also, there's a, and, and there's a, links on there. Uh, Steve Harnish has a website with just a, an amazing amount of information. But depending on a person, see, if a person's really emotional, I wouldn't necessarily recommend a first book be uh, like the Albigen Papers or the Psychology, but I would recommend Get Rose's Poetry Book, mm. Carillon, C-A-R-I-L-L-O-N, and it can be gotten from Rose Publications and probably through the Tat Society or the Tat Foundation. But, and just read the poetry out loud, see? And uh, incidentally, in the back of the Albigen Papers, Rose's poem, uh, Three Books of the Absolute, that is an induction, just like Merrill Wolf had an induction, uh, which didn't do anything for me because I'm not intellectual. You know, it was he, Merrill Wolf was a different kind of guy. You know, I had a different kind of head. But Rose's poem, The Three Books of the Absolute, when, you know, on a certain time, on a certain day, for a certain person, that'll open your head right up, you know, depending. And uh, um, let's see, but the psychology of the observer is his psychological system. Um, I, I just recommend any, but uh, I wanted to particularly highlight the Carillon for people who have a more emotional nature. If you started there, you might go further because you'll pick something up in some of those poems, you know, like he had one on friendship, which uh, uh, he wrote back in uh, 1980 at that winter intensive. And I was the first person, he came out of the room and pulled it out of the typewriter, and he said, hey, Kasari, how about reading this? So I was the first person to ever read it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it and it's just, uh, it's kind of, it has a mystical tint, tint, tint uh, uh, feeling to it, yeah. Is there a, uh, a final recommendation, perhaps, that you would that you would make to people, or, or uh, any advice uh, that you I'll would I'll tell you what, out? I'd like to... Um, yeah, follow your fascinations. Never give up and uh, find somebody that uh, you can help, you know, pass it on, see. 
whatever you learned today, somebody's still looking for it. But uh, I wonder if you'd mind if I'd read this poem titled Friendship. It's only about a dozen lines. Oh, that would be great. I'd love it. Okay. All right. Friendship. I passed through a deep crevice at twilight, and I saw a narrow vista of trees, magical in the mists, vocal to the hush of meaning, whispering to the wisdom of shades, of degrees, before the backdrop of eternity. And I had a friend whose dust with mine was not the bond, whose love with mine was not the bond, whose teaching to me was not the bond. Both of us had been to this same place, to the twilight in the narrow crevice, and because of this place, we are eternal. Richard Rose. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. I have a couple more poems I'd like to read. The Call. A sail is on the sea, and evening shadows drape its masts with mystery. The gloaming sad lights shape a quiet mad eternity. And for this sail a sea that storms my spirit through, on seas of memory, in lambent vesper hue, for this there burns a fire in me. A sail is on the sea, my spirit in its hold. Each eve I gather me its phantom crew of old and ride the wide immobile sea. The sail is on the sea, though waves unfalling stand are hushed from rolling free, nor break upon the sand, but stand and whisper soft to me. A sail is on the sea, and shadows from it call. Come, lad, and sail with me. Though painted on the wall, it cries, Come, lad, and sail with me. Mr. Rose uh, considered nostalgia the window to the soul, and a lot of his poems had that touch of nostalgia in them, or tinge. Um, at least I found them so many, many times. This one is called The Poet's Dream. Soft is the nose of the wide-eyed fawn, soft somewhere in the forest deep. Far from the eyes that by beauty drawn, wonder now, did I dream asleep? Sweet was the dream as I dreamed of gold, and I dreamed that I ran for a chest, ran and awaked with a fever cold, lost by running the joy of my quest. Sweet was the vision so pure and fair that escaped as I clasped her to me. Tender the vision that was not there, that I dreamed but was never to see. Old I am now and now quickly fled, but immortally young is my dream. Leave it behind though I may, still red, reds the rose on the banks of the stream.
Sweet is the lamb and my love is pure. Sweet the face that my soul would caress. Sweet, but I know I will not be sure and my spirit would hunger with less. And finally, the last one I'll read. Old Town Square. I want to go down to the Old Town Square in autumn time and sit with the old men in council there without a dime to hear the echoes of their brothers' feet that marched war, to know these bent forms long to brothers meet and march no more. No thought perturbs these men to shedding time when leaves will fall, ambition's wings, new feathers molt to climb as far the call. The drab old man who saw the fall of kings will not aspire who feels akin and calm to autumn sings, no songs of fire. I want to go down to the old town square, for this is fall. I'll sit in the silence and wait and share, and that is all. <laughs>